What a great reminder. So words written by dead white guys are good. I don't know if you're familiar with Isaac Watts, since you mentioned it, Stu, that uh, he actually put all 150 psalms in the Psalter. He rewrote the words in English rhyme so that we could enjoy them. And I found it on the Internet. It's a PDF. You can download it and enjoy it. Um, My uncle had a copy, and he photocopied every single page for me because he didn't um, have the book to give away. But I have it, and it's, it's marvelous. Just to read it uh, and enjoy it and use it for your devotions, to just, uh, it helps keep your minds focused. If you're wa- walking through the Psalms, just read what he wrote as a, as a poem in English, and then he set every single one of them to music. Um, and uh, he didn't write all the music for them. He used commonly known tunes of the day, and he just has at the top common meter or whatever the meter is, and you could sing it to a hymn in your hymn book uh, if you wish to do so. But they are really a blessing. Good, good set of, uh, good resource to have. Well, we've made it to Second Peter, the end of the chapter, first chapter, and next week we will see if we can get to chapter 2, but uh, if I'm a little groggy this morning, it's because I drove 10 hours this weekend back and forth to Canton, Ohio, and then we worked all day Friday with my son-in-law and half a day yesterday at installing big, heavy doors um, in a church. um, Our builders with Baptist Church Planners under church care are helping to build a an addition, a new auditorium and and education wing and uh, offices for the pastor and staff um, at Grace Baptist in Canton, Ohio. And uh, so we were there to help them. So we installed 10 doors on Friday and then came back yesterday and involved, and then we installed uh, six double doors, uh, the kinds you have in your auditorium here. So... I'm tired, <laughs> but uh, we're all ready to go. So are you ready? Turn to Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the last few verses of this particular chapter. And if I might say, this passage of Scripture in, this, in verses 12 through 21 is really the crux of Peter's epistle. So if you... If you can't remember anything I said before, or don't re- choose to remember anything I say after, at least remember this passage, will you? Because this really is his reason for writing the epistle. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11, and our big takeaway was don't give up, hang in there. One of Peter's arguments for not giving up is by reminding his audience that what he has already told them, along with the rehearsing of his experience with the Lord on the Mount of Olives, or rather on the Mount of Transfiguration, are motivators for not giving up. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles for just a moment, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 16 and read the few verses that precede the account of the Mount of Transfiguration by Matthew, and it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John excludes the Mount of Transfiguration uh, in his gospel. And the reason for that is, I'm sure you're familiar, but I'll just remind you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They all see Jesus' life from somewhat the same point of view. The gospel of John is different because it's more of a theological treatise on the person and nature and work of Christ. And so um, there's a difference. He doesn't give a chronological necessary um, delineation of Jesus' life as the three synoptics do. And that's why John kind of is set apart 
as one of the four Gospels. He kind of begins with Christ's eternality. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Whereas the others begin with either a genealogy or they begin with his early life, his birth, and so forth. So Matthew delineates Christ or portrays Christ as the king. And so a Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, the reason I'm reading the verses preceding the transfiguration, because it kind of puts the transfiguration in context. Then Jesus told his disciples, I'm reading beginning with verse 24 of chapter 16 of Matthew. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he does. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then after six days, chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. Notice who the first one in the bunch is, Peter. And led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them all, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now this is a, a, a striking event. Jesus takes three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain, and they actually get a glimpse of who Jesus really is. Now up to this point, they'd seen Jesus perform miracles, they had heard him speak, and people were uh, healed, the lame were healed, the blind were made to see. And there had already been a basic understanding of who Jesus was. But then he takes them on the mountain, and he is changed in front of their very eyes. And then on top of it, they hear the voice of God. What do you do with an experience like that? Well, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll see what you do with an experience like that. <laughs> Peter, in verse 12, says, Because of all the things I've already told you in chapter 1, and let me just quickly rehearse that. Remember verse 5? He talks about all those qualities, and he references it three times. Uh, verse 8, 
For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And then verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And then he has a second therefore, and that's in chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter couples the repeating words, remind, verse 12, reminder, verse 13, and recall, in verse 15, along with the ever-recurring thought of knowing. He says, you know, verse 12, I know, verse 14, we made known, verse 16, and knowing this first of all, in verse 20. You see how there's memory involved here? There's recall, remind, remember, know, knowing. Peter is playing off of these two opposite ideas to cause his readers to pay attention to what he's saying to them. So I asked the question, what did everybody know? Well, we have what did Peter's audience know? Verse 12, he says, you know. And he refers to these qualities which we were looking at last time in our study. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly love, or rather brotherly affection and love. He says, you know these things. These aren't new things. These are things you know. Don't forget them. So what did Peter know? Peter says, I know I'm going to die soon, basically. I know the Lord has revealed to me that I'm not going to last long. And uh, I'm going to be going to be with my maker. And so before I leave, before I'm gone, before I'm dead, I want you to remember these things. Because I know you know them, but remember them. Now, he then makes a, 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 another phrase in verse 16 where he says, we made known. So what did Peter and the apostles know? Well, they were fully aware of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus. There was supernatural power and the imminent return of Christ. He said, I know, we know as apostles, and we have made known this to you. So he was referring back to what had the apostles taught along the way? What did they know? They imparted what they knew to the disciples that followed them. But what was known collectively? What did they all know together? And that's what Peter makes reference to, knowing this first of all. And he refers back then to the origin of Scripture, that it's divine, and it was guided by the Holy Spirit. So this, this thinking permeates this passage of Scripture from Peter. So let's go back and look at that in detail. I think at the very beginning, we have Peter's concern. What was his concern? His concern was that his readers might forget the importance of what they had been entrusted with. You know, before you, you, you spend time and energy teaching and instructing and guiding and directing, and then it's time for you to leave this earth. And I think Peter finally had a sudden memory uh, I better remind them of everything I taught them because if they forget this, then they're going to be in a pickle. And so John MacArthur says in this passage, Peter dis digresses from his subject of salvation, which he broached in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. He digresses from that subject of salvation and drops in a statement about the importance of reminding people of essential truth. Christ had called Peter to pastor. Remember? We saw that the first Sunday in John chapter 21. 
what would we see between Peter's denial and the first couple chapters of Acts where he's bold and he, God uses him to, to be the kind of the catalyst for the beginning of the church. So he goes back and Christ recommissions him, so to speak, calls him to pastor, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend them. And his words reveal his pastoral passion in four motivations. Notice, urgency, kindness, faithfulness, and brevity. He doesn't go on a long treatise that lasts multiple chapters. He just has basically 10 or 11 verses where he just summarizes and reminds them why what I'm saying is important and why is it important that I'm saying these things and what authority do I have to say that those things are important. So Peter, first of all, reveals his purpose to always remind you of these qualities, 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Why? Because even though you know them, What is the danger? You can figure it out, right? What's the danger? You know stuff, right? What's the danger? We forget. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> we, like this morning when I left, uh, I had it right beside me as I was reading my Bible this morning, and I got up from the chair, and I left my phone right on the arm of my chair, and I am... Um, 10 minutes from the house, down the road, and I go, I forgot my phone. <laughs> so I had to turn around and go back and get it. We still got here on time. That wasn't a big deal. But, you know, I know these things, and I put it beside me so I wouldn't forget, and what did I do? I forgot. So there are things that we know. Peter's saying, I don't doubt in my mind at all that you do not know these things, that you are not aware of these things. But the danger is that we forget. You ever have that problem? You know God's truth. You know it. You've learned it. Pastor Tim has taught you well. And you still, in the midst of a crisis or a difficulty, what do you do? You forget <laughs> the truth that you were just taught. And after we get involved in a situation where we're trying to solve it with our own human wisdom and strength, we go, oh, yeah, God's word says, I need to remember that. The believers in the first century were no different than we are. They had quick forgetters, slow rememberers. Therefore, as a result of what Peter previously unfolded with all these qualities, these next verses are a logical next step in Peter's thinking regarding how important these qualities are. Coupled with Peter's urgency, I am going to be putting off my body soon. It heightens Peter's need to communicate the essential truths to those who are in exile. Notice that he not only says, you know, but you are established. Now, this is something that is, is repeated multiple times in the book of Second Peter as well. That the quality or ability to be stable and sure in your faith is another example of when we know the truth, have been taught the truth, are convinced of the truth, that we, it makes us so we're stable. So when the crisis hits, when you get that phone call, when you have an emergency, whether it's a, a, an emotional or a physical emergency in your life, we as believers do not need to fall apart and go spastic. We can be sure and steady as we face the trials and troubles of life. And that's what James refers to. He says, don't be a double-minded person who's unstable in all their ways. By the way, that's the negative of the positive of this word. James uses it. When you're double-minded, that means you, well, I don't know which one. No, that breeds instability. 
But we are, when we are convinced of the truth and we know that it's fact, we know who God is, we're assured of his character, we know that when he makes a promise, what does God do? Does he, does he foil and, and, and wobble on it? No, he keeps his promises. And that's what Peter says. Remember? Those great and precious promises. And that's what gives us that stability. We can be established in the truth and not waver. He says that they were firmly established in the truth. He uses the same root word in verse 17 to exhort his readers one last time, literally, not to lose your stability. It's the same word, to be established. Don't lose that established nature of who you are in Christ. I've discovered that lots of young people in our day and age, they they struggle. I've met more young people lately that struggle with identity. I'm not really sure who I am. You know the best way to figure out who you are? If you have truly trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, let me encourage you to go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and just read those verses and make a list of who you are in Christ. And that will give you the stability you need to whatever comes your way. And no matter how wacky the world gets around you, where people don't know if they're an armchair or a dog or whatever, they identify as whatever, you can assuredly say, I know who I am because of Jesus. And they might ask you, well, how do you know that? And you can go, come with me and let's read Ephesians chapter 1 together. You will be the odd person out, I'll guarantee you. Because the world we live in really, truly is all over the map. And it's because they have forsaken the word of God as their solid foundation. They are not established in the truth. They don't have a source where they can consult what's called absolute truth. But we do. And that's what Peter's point is in this passage of Scripture. Notice that he reveals the duration of his reminder. He says, I'll always, but also as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of a reminder. He says, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep beating the same thing, the same drum. I'm going to say the same thing. I'm going to remind you that the word of God never changes, that God is true, that God never lies. That... And we need to do that. Peter did that. Why did he do that? Notice in verse 13, I think it right. To do what? To stir up your memory by way of a reminder. I don't know about you, but sometimes we just need people to remind us of what is true. That's why when I, when I speak in most places for any length of time, I said, you may come here and look for something that is new and innovative and uh, Watch out for preachers that tell you that they have something new and improved to share with you. That, to me, is a major red flag. Because there is nothing new and improved in the Word of God. When you come here, I hope that what I do each Sunday is to remind you of the things you already know. <laughs> Why? Because we all have a tendency to forget. Peter's doing the same thing in this passage of Scripture. He is not teaching these folks anything new. He's not revealing something unheard of before. He's just reminding them, you know these things. And I'm here to remind you of these things. You just need to remind yourself, be reminded of, recall what you already know. Then Peter makes a promise, which I think is kind of cool. I will make every effort so that after my departure, so that when I'm dead and gone, you will not forget these things. 
And guess what? We are here in the 21st century, and we are rehearsing what Peter wrote. Do you think Peter accomplished his, his goal, his aim? He sure did. Here we are back in, where, where, where are we? We're in July or June. We're in June, right? Yeah, it's the end of June. I'm getting mixed up in my dates. This is the end of June of 2023, and we're still rehearsing what Peter said in this chapter. So do you think Peter accomplished his objective? You bet he did. And until Jesus comes and takes us to be with himself, which will be a glorious event, we get to rehearse what Peter gave us. So go back to this scripture. This passage of scripture has been a real encouragement to my heart over the years because Peter, he kept his promise. I am being reminded today, you are being reminded today through these words of what Peter did not want his hearers to forget. He wanted them to remember, and we are being reminded. So his objective is being accomplished. Now, what was Peter's confession? Well, he says, I know these things are absolutely true. And how do I know that? He says, it's interesting how he follows through with three negatives to counteract a negative argument. So two negatives make a what? Yeah, they make a positive. So Peter is actu actually arguing with negative arguments a negative argument. And the reason why I say that there's a negative argument. You look at chapter 2. Peter is anticipating those that would say, well, is this really true? Look at me with just for a second in chapter 2, verses 1 and following. But, now that's in contrast to what he's just telling us. We didn't believe in, false, in, in fables, etc. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So Peter is anticipating these people who are saying, are you really sure you should believe all that stuff? Because... You know, there's all kinds of prophecies that have been made. If you get into chapter 3, he gets into it even more in depth. He says there are people that deny that anything ever happened and that, y'all, why are you believing in this, in the, in the coming of the Lord? It's been how much time and he still hasn't come back? Are you still going to believe in that? What's the matter with you? Are you guys crazy? Yes, we are. Why? Because we have great and precious promises that have been made to us. And it's based on the character of the one who made those great and precious promises that we can trust what has been said. What's the first negative argument? We did not follow cleverly devised myths. And what basically these naysayers, these people who were arguing with Peter about well, should you trust what's been said before by the prophets of old? Peter says, we didn't follow myths like you guys follow. We have a, a sure word. We didn't follow those things as if they were myths. Peter, Peter says, secondly, we have a, the, excuse me, there is no prophecy of Scripture that did not come but through one's own interpretation. He says, you know, you guys have all kinds of uh, uh, prophecies or oracles that were made in the first century by people who proposed to be telling the truth or foretelling the future. And he says, we have... No prophecy of Scripture that comes from someone's own interpretation. That's his second argument. The third one is he says, 
weep for verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And this is where he really gets to the heart of it. Men's idea of what was going to occur and predictions for the future were based on people that had a charismatic following or who had people and they had convinced a whole bunch of other people that they had, ooh, this dude's got the goods. Is there anything new and different today? Today we have, it it comes in different places, different ways. I just think of one example. His name is Benny Hinn. And you have others who are of his same style. They put on a flashy show. They got this really fantastic uh, television set, you know, stage where they can broadcast their foolishness and they 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 dress really sharp they fly around in really expensive aircraft but they 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 have a good way of of just just talking to people and they convince them i mean just look at joel osteen he's got 10,000 people in that huge building that he's got i mean it's just amazing and you go well he's got to be doing something right not that many people would be duped would they yeah they would (laughs) and we have example after example after example where i really saw this rampant was in africa when i went there my goodness you think they have big crowds in the u.s you ought to go to africa I think Bennett could probably attest to that coming from Ghana. I mean, it's just amazing how many people can be duped into following a person because what they say sounds so good, sounds so convincing. And Peter says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And all these other arguments that are being thrown against him, which we'll see in chapter 2 and 3, are produced by men, by the will of man. They invent things, and they try to to convince people through very clever argumentation and rhetoric to follow them and and the falsehoods that they promote. And Peter says, we do not have a prophecy that was ever produced by the will of man. Now, what caused Peter to have this rock-solid, established confidence that this was true and that those that were saying falsehoods were not true? Notice what he says in verse 16. but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, we saw this. It wasn't like, oh, I've got better arguments than you. I'm smarter than you are. Remember, Peter was a lowly fisherman with no formal education. So Peter couldn't go back and say, well, I've got, a, uh, I've got a degree in X, like Paul could. <laughs> but I find it just utterly fascinating that what Peter is saying, uneducated as he was, and what Paul says, match. They're saying the same thing. They're explaining the same truths. Paul, much more refined in his language and vocabulary, was able to explicit those things in a much more erudite way. He used complicated words and complicated argumentation. By the way, Peter makes a reference to it in chapter 3, and he says, yeah, Paul says things that are very hard to understand. (laughs) Peter was plain and simple. A lowly fisherman. But he says, you can't deny what I saw. 
I saw it. And I heard it. And for me, that's true. So what does he use as his argumentation? Well, obviously, the transfiguration. I was there. I saw Jesus transform from just a regular human being into something that was completely different. And there was a voice from heaven that spoke. There was no denying that Peter was convinced that what he had seen and heard was the truth. He says, you're not going to convince me otherwise. I saw it, I heard it. So that's where Peter's confidence comes from in verses 17 to 19. He says, I have no doubt that what I saw with my own eyes and I heard with my own ears is the truth. Peter's eyewitness account, when he received glory and honor from God the Father, look at it, what it says in in the text. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then we find in Matthew that the voice said, Follow him. Peter heard this voice. There was no doubt in his mind. And obviously, there were two other guys there, James and John. They heard the same voice. They saw the same thing. They were convinced. And I think that's what Peter was referring to back up earlier when he says, these are things that we have known. Verse 16, when we made known, who's the we? I think it was Peter, James, and John together, three of them. Hey, we all saw this. You you saw this, right, John? You saw this, right, James? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Same thing. We heard that, right? You heard the voice. Yep. I think it's fascinating. No doubt in his mind. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard that voice. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. And we were, this is the third argument. Not only did they see it, not only did they hear it, but it says we heard ourselves this voice. We were physically with him on the holy mountain. kind of hard to argue against three witnesses that saw and heard the same thing and were physically with Jesus in that event. Now remember, you go back to the Old Testament, and what is the surefire belief that you can have when something is said about an event? You need three witnesses. And Jesus gathered all three with him when he went up on the mountain. You always wonder, well, why didn't he take four? Well, he only needed three. That's all he needed. And these three men are key individuals in the leadership of the disciples while Jesus was on earth. Peter, James, and John. So Peter had no doubt in his mind. He quotes exactly, word for word, what the gospel writers record. You check out Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all say the same thing. Peter quotes the same phrase. This statement must have had an enormous impact on Peter, especially in his viewpoint of who Christ was and in his mind and heart that Christ was none other than God in the flesh. And what should that do for you and me? These words are truth. Ancient words that we can trust, that we can believe, that we can place our confidence in. 
Jesus is God. Jesus came in the flesh. And Chris mentioned it this morning. It's, second P, it's uh, Philippians chapter 2, the hypostatic union. You know, he's fully God, but yet he's fully man. Now, if we had time, we could go back into Matthew and Luke and Mark and see that what follows in those gospel accounts is soon after Peter is called upon to make his confession. Who do men say that I am? Why do you suppose Peter said what he said? Well, I saw it, and I heard it. You can't deny it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ is God. So what's Peter's conclusion? And here's where I think we can use the scriptures when we come to them. And these are, this is good, solid argumentation from Peter as to this is why I believe what I believe. So when Peter makes this conclusion in verse 20 and 21, it is based on solid, rock-solid facts. Knowing this first of all. Goes back to that knowing and knowledge. How do we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Verse 18 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Well, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, interpreting the facts is not up to you to just pick and choose. I have solid facts to back up why I say what I say. I saw it, and I heard it, and there were two other witnesses with me, so three witnesses makes it a done deal. You can trust it. And then verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, so what Peter heard was not produced by man, and he knew that. It was, ooh, the voice of God had spoken on the mount. So Peter uses that example, those facts, to then make this conclusion, the last phrase of verse 21. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not only Peter's conclusion, but this is also divine revelation coupled together this is an example of how we got Scripture, folks. Scripture comes from God. Scripture comes from divine revelation. And notice how Peter makes his argument. Men... So he, he, uh, he, he acknowledges the human element in the transmission of biblical truth to mankind. Men spoke, notice, from God, not from themselves, because no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And what he's saying is that no real, true, genuine, honest-to-goodness, biblical, divine truth was ever produced by men. It was produced as men spoke from God. Now, what's fascinating, it, and we don't have time to un, unpack all of this theologically this morning, but I think it's important to at least make you aware of, there are some people that believe that the gospel writers and the epistle writers, the prophets from the Old Testament, they were basically automatons. In other words, God took them over, they got into a trance, and they just did, like, you know, automatic writing or whatever. That is not the case. And the reason why I know that is not the case, because all you have to do is compare all the different writings from the different authors and different genres throughout the Bible. You have prophetic, you have historical narrative, you have poetry, you have prophecy, you have gospels, you have epistles, and you have apocalyptic stuff written by John in the book of Revelation. 
each one of those individuals that wrote, whether it was Nahum or it was Moses or it was John or it was Peter or Paul, they each had their style of writing. That's what's given those who do uh, literary criticism um, and they do analysis of texts and grammar and syntax and the use of vocabulary. And some people just tear their hair out and they go, well, how could one author write a book in one style and then write another style when he wrote, writes another book? Well, that occurs regularly. People write with different purposes in mind. They look at their audience and they say, I probably should use simpler vocabulary when talking to an audience that may not be as educated as the last people I wrote to. So you have all these different genres of, of literature. They use all kinds of different vocabularies. They were written over a span of 2,000 years. They addressed various cultures. Therefore, they did use different vocabulary. They were written in at least two different languages, Hebrew and, and Greek. And there was also some portions in the book of Esther that are written, and the book of Daniel written in Aramaic, which is a derivative of Hebrew. So you've got all these different languages, all these different authors, written over a large span of time, written in different genres, employing different vocabulary and syntax. But they all have the same message. There is a unity among it. Why? Why this unity? How come Peter could write and reference the Old Testament prophets and say, they are saying the same thing that I saw and heard? It's because it's guided by the Spirit of God. And that's why he says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a beautiful image here in the word carried along. We don't have time this morning, but in the book of Acts, when Luke is explaining the voyages of Paul, and he's got those scenes in chapters 27 and 28 where there's the, 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 uh, they're, they're on a ship and there's a, 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 a shipwreck. But they're in the midst of a storm. And he said, you know, the wind got so strong, the, the nor'easter was blowing so hard that we just let her go, the ship that is. And they took their hand off the rudder and the wind just carried that ship where the wind was going to carry that ship in the Mediterranean. The same word that's used as a nautical term to show that that ship was carried along by the wind and that the wind was pushing it in the direction it wanted it to go is the exact same word that Peter used. Remember, Peter's a fisherman. He's used to boats. He's explaining how the Holy Spirit carried along the writers of the Bible in writing scripture, and it's just like when the wind blew on a ship in the middle of a storm, that the wind carried the ship in the direction it wanted it to go. That's the same way God carried along human authors to write what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write as holy scripture. Isn't that a beautiful image? So we... For Peter's sake, he says to us, there is no doubt in my mind that we believe what God has spoken. These people that come along and say, well, are you really sure you should believe that? These are prophecies from the Old Testament. They haven't been fulfilled yet, so why are you trusting in them? Peter says, you can believe this. Don't forget that the word of God is sure. It's absolutely true. It will never fail you. And you have no reason to doubt. That's why Peter says, don't forget. Don't forget. 
Now, what does this do for our confidence in the Word of God? That you, the, the copy of the Scriptures that you hold in your very hand today, what does that do for you? Well, from Peter's perspective, you can trust it implicitly. That's why they're great and precious promises, because they come from the author of truth. You can be confident that this word of God that you hold in your hand today, called the Bible, is true. There's no need to doubt it. It's been corroborated by three witnesses. You can trust it. So as a result, don't forget. It's something that you can live your life by. It's something you can trust whatever comes into your life. Let me encourage you to read it every day. I know that's a famous old Sunday school song. Read your Bible, pray every day. It's still true today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us a reliable, trustworthy, absolutely infallible word. We can believe it. We can live our lives based on it. And Father, when we are in doubt as to what we need to do, how we should live, we can go to it, consult it. It will guide us. Just like the psalmist said, it's a lamp, it's a light unto our path. Lord, help us to take advantage of that and to continue to consult this word every single day. Memorize it. Live by it. And share its truths with those we come in contact with on a daily basis. Guide us, direct us, and Lord, help us never to forget what you have given to us. I pray this in Jesus' name.